Welcome to Sound Mind Sound Body Stories, a podcast powered by ASICS. I'm Tegan Nash, and this is a show for anyone and everyone on a mission to improve their health physically and mentally. Today on Sound Mind Sound Body Stories, we're going to hear from ex AFL legend Tom Boyd. But it isn't just his career as a football star that I'm interested in. We speak today about Tom's journey into the darkness of depression and how he came out the other side with a mission to help others facing mental health issues and to show them that there is no shame in getting help. This guy is the real deal and his sound mind, sound body story is one we should all be paying attention to. Here is Tom Boyd. Tom Boyd, thank you so much for joining us today. Now, I've just got to say, you're probably one of the most requested guest. Uh, You're a big advocate for mental health and we're just super delighted to have you join us today and share your story. Well, I'm absolutely flattered. That's uh, so nice to hear that people want to hear what I have to say. And yeah, as you said, look, my background background primarily is in football and um, I spent my my early and formative years playing the game that I loved for a long time and then was obviously able to achieve some of the high successes. But to be honest, what I found the biggest source of passion in my life has been the work that I do in mental health and, and particularly in the space of talking about my own story, certainly, but basically trying to uncover what other people's stories are and, and, and try and deal with some of the, the challenges that young people and people more broadly are facing in, in today's day and age. So it's um, yeah. an exciting work to do. It's so important. It's sort of like an epidemic amongst men and women around the world. It's becoming you know, more spoken about. That's really important. But I thought we'd sort of uh, kick things off. Obviously, we want to hear your story, but let's go back to where it all began. Start things off with footy. Was it your passion growing up or was it something that you were just really good at? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And how do you discern the two? Like people enjoy doing things that people tell them they're good at. So why try and uh, and sort of deconstruct the two from each other? I mean, there's certainly always a passion for sport and, and, and team sport specifically. I mean, I played basketball and football at, at quite high levels up until the age of 15, where I basically focused um, primarily on footy. And, and look, my earliest memories are kicking the ball around in the mud in the local footy with my dad on a, you know, a Saturday <laughs> afternoon in the middle of winter. So quite clearly, I had some sort of passion for it. And I think, you know, for a part, the ability to be quite prolific is obviously something that encouraged me. And that was helped by the fact that I was grew 27 centimetres in prep. So that was certainly part of it. Yeah. And then the other side, obviously, just I've always had this undeniable and need and attraction just to connection with people. And whether that be in the workplace or whether that be in the sporting field or just in friendship groups, it's something that, you know, when things are going well for me, connection with people is right at the top of my list. And I think that sport provides that in a lot of different ways, which I think has always been a big part of it. But then as I grew up, I think the one thing that changed, so by the time I was 15, I was doing 11 sessions of sport a week. I was playing basketball at the state level. I was playing football at the state level. I was captain of the Victorian uh, Metro football side. And, you know, on a Sunday morning, I would train for two hours for basketball. And then I'd back it up with a full game of um, football playing in the ruck. So, you know, I basically got to the stage where I had to choose. And I think invariably I was always going to choose footy. That's sort of where my passion always lay. So I followed that, um, followed my, my, my instincts and, and they were correct. You know, the next two years were extraordinarily successful for me. I was able to basically be selected in every representative side and state side, national side that you can be. And the one distinct change I think happened in that period of time for me in regards to the fact that football became 
what people knew me for rather than, you know, who I was. And I think that was probably the beginning of the journey where, you know, hindsight again, 2020, but it's the first time where I started treating it and approaching it a lot differently because I was trying to spend time obviously working out who I was, but basically Mm -hmm. all I was doing was focusing on what I did. And I think that was one of the great challenges that I faced sort of in my youth at least. How do you focus on who you are? down to your core because you know I've spoken about this with friends you know when you pass on what do you want to be remembered as do you want to be remembered you know having all these different titles or do you want to be remembered for you because you were kind and caring and you know how do you how do you sort of find that yeah I mean look one of the great barriers to it obviously is the financial constraints of the world we live in Australia is a brilliant beautiful wonderful country to live in but it's expensive so that does confine a lot of people from having the freedom to work out who you are. And I think for me, it's those moments where, um, and I remember hearing some uh, psychologists describe this some a couple of years ago, and it really, really resonated with me at the time. And basically what they were saying was, you know, what are the moments when you're doing something where you almost don't even realize what's happening? You know, you, you're so captivated and you're so entrenched in whatever activity that it is that 10 minutes goes by in the blink of an eye. And mm-hmm. in those moments, you're the most occupied, the most satisfied. It's where you accomplish the most things because you are 100% in the moment. And I never found that I had that with football. Um, and that's sort of the great pursuit of life as a young person is trying to find what is that thing. And then if it's art or if it's, for me, it's in particular it's speaking and sharing and connecting with people. That's when I spend all my time. I find that it disappears. Or if it's something more of a sort of hobby like surfing, well, then the question becomes, what do I need to do to be able to do as much of that as possible? And part of that, obviously, is understanding that if you want to be a surfer all the time and it's a hobby, well, then you need to set your life up in a way where you can obviously financially support yourself and whoever else you're living with, but then also sort of integrate that into your life. So that's the way that I've tried to approach it. It's not a foolproof system. It's obviously got its challenges to it and, and we're always going to be working out who we are. And, you know, me, who I am now today, sitting here talking to you is not going to be the same person as it will be in a year's time or, or 10 for that matter. Yeah, you definitely change and you grow. I think you wouldn't be human if you didn't. <laughs> It'd be pretty boring. Yeah, I know you'd be a robot. How did you manage balancing, you know, your basketball, your footy when you were so young? Did you have a lot of stress or pressure put on yourself? Uh, certainly at times. I mean, I basically started making the newspaper be it on a local or, you know, council level when I was 15. So mm. that became probably a bit of a yardstick for me. And it's a, it's a very young age to deal with it. But then when you consider that I was throwing myself into basketball and football, and not to mention that I was a really avid and dedicated student, it sort of meant that momentum was key. And, and I, I tend to think that inertia in your life, whether that be with how much activity you're doing or how little activity you're doing, mm. does count for something. And so I slowly but surely filled up my calendar from when I was probably 10 years old until when I was, since I retired in 2019 with as much stuff yeah. as I could. And it's extraordinary how much capacity you do have until you hit that a injury setback point, which was for me when I was 15, when I first started having issues with my back mm. or in 2017, when my real issues with my mental health kicked in and it was sort of the most significant challenge of my time. And then it's like, well, to, 
to try and make up that ground that you've lost or the capacity that you've lost, that's when things become challenging. And I think so to answer your question as succinctly as I can, you know, when I was 15, I was just on a roll. You know, I was just so filled up with all the things that I was doing and pressure wasn't necessarily the thing at the forefront of my mind because I was just so occupied. Yeah. Do you think it was sort of like a a boiling point because you were doing so many things, filling your calendar, then you had an injury? Do you think it was sort of like a tipping point? Yeah. I mean, it was that moment in time where the penny drops and you realize that Mm. you're not 12 anymore. (laughs) You know, like at some stage in your life, I know it sounds stupid, I'm only 25, but you do grow up and your body does stop having the same elasticity that it once did. And when I was 15, it really became obvious to me that the genetic probably weaknesses I have in my family, particularly from my mum's side, in terms of lower back issues, were going to be a a challenge moving forward. So it was a real moment. And look, I think this is a, a lesson that stood the test of time, at least with me, which is that, you know, at these moments in time where things are at a breaking point or that you've put yourself in a position where you're too overwhelmed and I don't use overwhelmed in the the light sense of the word I mean like where you can't physically or mentally go on in that one moment I think it's a it's the evaluation point it's the reflection point where you go okay well what what pieces do I need to pick up from this mess that I find myself in be it whatever circumstance and what pieces do I need to keep and what do I need to leave behind and I think for me with the reference to the 15 year old time it was like basketball is no longer satisfying me enough Mm. and it's costing me from an opportunity cost point of view time to spend on my football career and also you know in my in the rest of my life so it became very clear to me that I need to to keep moving and and go after what I really wanted to do yeah and so we talk about uh you know being injured in sport it's something so incredibly common with athletes how do you deal with injury in sport and do you have advice for young sportsmen or women coming up yeah yeah I mean look every injury is different uh there's a few injuries that I mean there there is some advice that I uh, I do have um but the caveat to the advice that I'll give in a second is that you know chronic injuries are different uh so I had a chronic back issue later in my career and that was extraordinarily hard because progress is is so satisfying for people and I think for those who've had a lot of issues, you know, with, you know, nerve issues or lower back or uh, neck issues are common as well, or chronic, chronic um, soft tissues, it doesn't really seem like there's a physical way out. And I think then is the time where you really need to lean in on the people who can support you mentally. But from an actual practical sense, you know, I had um, a shoulder reconstruction, I had multiple ankle surgeries, I broke multiple fingers, had compound dislocations, and none of them were as difficult as the chronic back issue because if you have a good team of people, and that's if you're young or old, professional, amateur, the fact that you access professionals to help you map out what the next period of time looks like, it be- can become really manageable. You know, with my shoulder, I played for three or four years after I initially heard it. And then in the 2016 season, where we were lucky enough to win the premiership, I dislocated my shoulder probably 15 or 16 times for the year. And it became such a part of like my normal routine for a game because my shoulder was so loose that <laughs> I, was ca- I was capable of dealing with the pain and then the mm. you know, immediate after effect of the game, which would be to try and get activation through my shoulder and all that sort of stuff. So once I had the surgery, it was very clear. 
you know, it's you need to get your strength to this point and this is how you're going to do it. Then you need to get your mobility to this point. This is how you do it. And once it's mapped out for you and you've sort of quantified exactly what you need to do, I think injuries can become manageable. But if you don't do that and you sort of wait and see and try and do it all on your own, it can be really challenging. Yeah, overwhelming for one person to deal with. Much like dealing with mental health and if you are going through something, you were at the top of your game but you were struggling. Did anyone close around you know what you were going through? Any of your teammates? Um, I was quite honest and open. I mean, I always have been and, I, and people ask me the question, you know, like, I think the word brave gets thrown around a bit too haphazardly in this area. But, you know, people have said, oh, you know, you're really brave to come out and speak about it. And I'm like, well, the thing with me and the way that I computed it at the time was I may as well have had a physical injury. I couldn't sleep. I could barely train. I couldn't concentrate. I was incapable of doing my job as an athlete. So what was the utility in me being like, oh, no, it's something else? Like, one, it was impossible to hide. And two, it was it just didn't seem genuine or authentic. And I was living with enough self-doubt and self-esteem issues that I didn't need to burden myself with the guilt of lying to all my friends and family about what was going on as well. So yeah, I think the good thing about the Bulldogs at the time, specifically from the circumstance we found ourselves in, was that we had a young group of players. So instead of having what could have potentially been guys who are all 10 years older than me and, and perhaps not as cognizant of mental health as an issue or at least not as educated as, as others would be who are a little younger, we had a good group of players who were all sort of within two or three years of me. And that was part of the power that was within the building because we had a huge cohort of guys who were all sort of pushing together in the same direction. But we wouldn't leave anyone behind. We wouldn't let anyone have a go at one of us without having a go at all of us. And that didn't resign itself strictly to on the field. That was, you know, off the field. That was in regards to what the media said about us. It was with everything. So in that sense, I was as lucky as you could have been with the support that I had from the players around me, which was great. It is so important to have that support system around you and you were incredibly lucky. Was there a moment or was there a series of events that was sort of like the aha moment where you were like, you recognised that you potentially needed help? Yeah, I mean... So for the full context of my journey, I started um, having issues when I moved to Sydney in 2013. So number one draft pick, the best thing since sliced bread when you get drafted. And then as soon as you hit the club land, it's basically like, okay, well, what have you done? Nothing. And where are you going? Hmm. So for me, I um, really struggled with the transition, not only of logistically going from Melbourne to Sydney, but then also being a boy to a man and then a, you know amateur footballer to a league footballer, senior to you know, all of that stuff. I mean, the thousands of transition, particularly in such a formative period of your life, was really challenging. And so my first issue started then when I was really struggling to sleep, which was completely confusing to me considering that I was more tired than I'd ever been mm. and I was doing more training than I ever had and I'd ex- you know pretty much exclusively been a good sleeper as an 18 or younger. And then all of a sudden was like not sleeping well, taking ages to get to sleep. Then I was waking up all the time and I was just getting so fatigued. All the, like, Everything in my week was compromised by it. And so that was really confusing. But, you know, what I often say, especially to the groups that I talk to, is that by itself is a massive issue. I mean, sleep's so important. But mm. it often can be considered just normal to have sleep issues at different times. And I certainly didn't think too much of it until I started to have brushes with anxiety, which was sort of predicated by the sleep issues or they were at least interrelated. Sort of, yeah. And then I'm like, I'm not sleeping. 
I've got everything that I wanted at least like four months ago. And mm-hmm. I just, for the first time in my life, feel completely out of my skin. So I started to have a small amount of commentary to different people that oh, I just, I don't I feel a bit off and I'm not really sure what's going on. And don't, mm. don't get me wrong. I had no idea what mental health was yeah. back then, but I basically got told that it was most likely homesickness. And so when I moved back to Victoria, I presumed that that was just going to go away. I mean, I just signed the biggest contract just about in history of the AFL as an 18 year old. And then 2015, 2016, my football's going in, you know, the perfect upward direction and my mental health yeah. is going completely the opposite. And I'm just investing proportionally more and more time in my footy thinking that's going to turn things around for me. Unfortunately, that's not the case. And then by the time I hit the end of the 2016 season, you know, here of the premiership, million dollar a year player, 21 years old, mm. basically doing everything that I possibly could have dreamed for and ultimately probably more than I could have hoped for. And then I fell off a cliff, really, with my with my mental state. I mean, I just put it off and ignored it for so long. Basically, I was going into games, not sleeping for a couple of nights at a time. I was really struggling to feel comfortable. I couldn't get through meetings. I was having panic attacks. Like, I was just... Mm just all over the shop with my with my where I was at mentally. And by the time I pushed through another preseason with all these issues, then I hit the games. And then I was just playing, you know, on on the, the fumes of an oily rag basically every week. Then my yeah. body started to break down. And then once those two things happened together, I mean I was clearly really struggling mentally, but then my body refused to participate in the whole yeah. playing sport, which was my job. Then I realized that you know, I had to do something and, and it, it wasn't without a, you know, obviously a really challenging moments of time in my life that I finally reached out and basically said that enough was enough and if something didn't give, things were going to end up disastrous potentially. So it was a, it was a really fortunate that I had a good support of a psychologist at that stage from the Bulldogs, Lisa Stevens, who I speak about regularly. And I finally reached out, asked for help and, and started the long journey back. How did you feel once you did finally reach out? That can sometimes be the hardest hardest part for anyone dealing with any mental health issues just having that first initial chat saying okay yeah I do actually need help yeah I mean it's like anything the longer you leave it the harder it gets you've got you know more more issues that you've piled up over time and then it's sort of like compounding interest because by the time you get to dealing with it after you know six years essentially it's like okay where, where do we start um yeah so it, it was it was relieving in a sense because I had to deal with the 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 constraints of being an AFL footballer who was getting paid a lot of money to do a job that I was required to do and I couldn't complete that job so I needed someone in my corner to say okay well this is the sort of sharky waters that we've got ahead of us this is how we're going to navigate it and as much as anything that was probably one of the, the greatest tools that Lisa gave me in that immediate stages besides the obvious you know therapeutic assistance that she she provided but yeah. the actual ability to navigate the waters of here's the the commercial realities of football here's the physical realities and the mental realities and clearly the latter two aren't quite getting done properly at the moment your body's not up to it your mind's not up to it how do we compile the three together and get you back to being happy, healthy, and playing good footy. And I think that was yeah really useful. Yeah. And how do you manage it today, like on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it changes all the time. And I, I mm-hmm. think, you know, without any small credence put on the fact that my lifestyle choice of moving away from football has been extraordinarily useful. And I, I often use the... Was that a hard 
a hard decision to make? Yeah, uh, I, by then, you know, this, this, this sounds so silly, but mm. as a 23-year-old guy, I'd been thinking about retiring for six years, pretty much since I got to Sydney, which is, it's like one of those crazy contagions of the mind when you start thinking, yeah. well, do I need to be doing this? And once yeah. that takes a grip of you, it's very hard to shake. And at the same time, from my point of view, when I walked away from the two and a whatever million dollars that I was owed and the, the two and a half years of, on my contract, it was like, mm. it, in many ways, someone deserved to be there more than I did at that stage because I didn't necessarily want to be there. And it felt extraordinarily inauthentic and potentially was going to end really badly if I just sat around took a massive check every month and then just didn't want to be there. So yeah. in many, in many ways it was, it was a really significant decision to arrive at. But once I hit the, the sort of tipping point of saying, no, I'm ready to go. It was just like pure clarity. And even looking back now, you know, I obviously miss parts of footy, don't get me wrong, but for the vast majority of my life, I remember exactly what I went through from a bureaucracy point of view, from a from a pressure point of view, from a scrutiny, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when you added all those things up, it just didn't make sense to spend 99.9% of my life working solely on what I did rather than focusing at all on who I was. So yeah. um, that's been really liberating since since finishing up for sure. Yeah, definitely. It is important to realise if you aren't enjoying something, it doesn't need to be in the sports scene. It can be in any aspect of your life. Recognise that and try and make the change. I think your happiness and your mental health is a lot more important than just doing something for a paycheck or just because you're good at it. Yeah, I mean, it's not, and it's not as simple as that, right? Like we all know that, again, like not to hark back to finances, but you know, we all need to eat. I think the thing to remember is that over my, let's say, five-year journey with mental health in football, you know, I tried to mitigate things. Like I tried to move pieces, change this, do that. And I never quite struck the balance right. And I think eventually I just got to the point where I was like, well, the reason why I'm not getting the balance right is because I can't mentally deal with people considering me as a bad person because I didn't play well on the weekend and I could never yeah. get my head around that as a person who like was always brought up you know to be really nice mannered and taught the value of, of respect and and care yeah. and all of these things that particularly that my mum was very big on being from Scandinavian background and for that all to be like completely discounted on a weekly basis depending on whether you were good bad or indifferent on the weekend it just felt so wrong to me which is ridiculous because obviously players do this every single week and and that's not just within the footballing realm but it's not for everyone and it, it certainly wasn't for me and I certainly found more satisfaction and have found a lot more satisfaction in the work that I do now. Hmm. And are there any rituals or routines that you practice now to help with mindset? Yeah I mean there's a few First and foremost, obviously, doing the things that you enjoy is always really important. And I mean that from a, a work sense. I mean that from a life sense. Um, I mean that from, a, you know, whatever hobbies you enjoy. I mean, trying to find time for all those things are really important. And again, I, I, I truly value, you know, connection with people. And that's a big part of the equation for me. Exercise is extraordinarily important for me. I mean, I've been with ASIC since I was 18 years old. And 
thank, thankfully, because I've been wearing that shoe since I was 12 and I can't find any shoes that fit me otherwise. So, <laughs> But exercise is extraordinarily important. I actually do some work with a company called Ever Perform around the sort of data analytics of, of, of well-being. And part of the framework I've set up for myself is around realistically like a few key components. One's the physiological side. So that would be sleep, diet, exercise. Then there's the connection side. So it's the interpersonal relationships we have in our lives, which leads to, you know, optimism and satisfaction. And then part of it is about the probably, let's say, the more negative sides of your life and how well they're going. So that would be your sort of stress and anxiety and the way that you are operating within your workspace and, and all of those things. And, and within that framework that I built is basically all of the little things that I can put together to quantify, you know, what makes me, me at my best. And you can track it and look at it over time and realize that, you know, the, the connection between your poor mental health, you know, poor satisfaction and accomplishments mm-hmm. of work, yeah. your excitement and optimism in life. I mean, it's always invariably, you know, connected and hence why doing all of those things and investing holistically in your physical, mental and emotional well-being is, is always going to be so important. Yeah. And, you know, we're in 2021. I think mental health is something that we are talking more about, but there's still an inherent stigma around it. Uh, and people are battling with mental health. They might be scared to open up. What, what is, what's your take on that? Yeah. Stigma is an interesting one, and I, I mean that in the the most you know friendly sense of the word. I, I don't think stigma is our our number one enemy right now. I think our number one enemy right now is is understanding more so, mm-hmm. um, and I mean that in the sense that you know when I spoke about mental health in 2017, particularly in the way that I did, which was quite in depth. Like I was one of the first players in the AFL to do it, and I didn't obviously that by choice it was kind of circumstantial more than anything but yeah um since then it's been clear that within the afl there's been a lot more tolerance for it understanding for it unfortunately you know in the absolute tragic of circumstances it's been connected to some of the worst obviously results from mental health issues but at the same time when i finished school in 2013 i knew nothing about it i mean i had no clue about the sheer scale of mental health from you know the person who experiences mild anxiety due to whatever's going on in their life all the way down to those who are you know debilitated by it and how everyone obviously fits within that that spectrum and that scale and I and I think understanding that is really important and then for people to access help what really um is the driving force behind a lot of what I do is trying to understand, you know, what are the barriers to entry for people to access the help they need? Like, do they worry because people are going to judge them? Well, then how do we educate people into how to get into their confidentially? Or how do you work out how to pay for this stuff? Because it's super expensive. Yeah. So then you have to educate people on, you know, mental health care plans from your GP. And if that's too expensive, well, then here's the free services you can. I mean, I do some work with Head to Help. They're a service that you can access for free, or at least Victorians can. And there's a number of other services like that around. And so slowly but surely, you need to break down the barriers of entry so that people, if required, when they're vulnerable, they don't have to wander through the dark and try and find the answer. Instead, of they have a simple, clear lit runway to the assistance that they need. And I think 
that's the biggest challenge, whether that be on a policy level from a government standpoint, obviously we've just done a Royal Commission, um, whether it be a, um, you know, a cultural and a societal understanding of, you know, what people need and what people go through, or quite frankly, within each workplace, if it's just what's presented to them and what support is um, provided. So they're all the different elements of, of accessing the help yeah. that people need. And I think that's just the, the next progression. It's like, how do we push every single one of these issues forward just ever so slightly over time so that we move this massive ship five degrees? Every little, every little bit counts and it affects so many people. So that's sort of where I think it's at at the moment. Yeah. And do you have any advice for people who have downloaded this podcast? Uh, obviously, because they know you, they know your story. Any advice for people who are about to take that next step forward and, and seek help? Yeah. I mean, look, I always tell people that uh, there's a, a massive misunderstanding of, of psychologists in particular. And look, don't get me wrong, there's a, a thousand branches of medicine that deal with this stuff. And it literally is one of the most overwhelming things if you look at it in, at its in entirety. But mm. with the psychologist in particular, I think one of the great fallacies is that people look at it like, whatever cartoon or movie they've seen where you lie on the couch and they ask you about your childhood. And, and quite frankly, most psychologists would be completely different to that. You know, the ones I've dealt with have primarily been basically used as brain coaches. I mean, it's like having a performance coach for your mind. And so what I found was that I needed to talk to her. I should have spoken to Lisa when I was struggling in the beginning instead of waiting until I did and mm-hmm. if I had who knows like who knows where I would have ended up if I'd been educated I've been able to access some of the support that I got later before you know the world came crashing down and you know I basically mm-hmm. couldn't work who knows what life like so my only bit of advice is that you know these people are the most supportive um, caring people in the world and that's literally not only what they've been trained to do but in many cases is what they've been born to do in terms of their, you know, characteristics and tendencies. So mm-hmm. access them when you can and do it whilst you're um, not feeling at your worst, because when you're at your worst, you want to be able to go in there and access the conversation in the easiest possible way. Yeah. Did you have any mentors or people you looked up to uh, during your career or even now? Uh, I have lots of different people who I look up to. I mean, you, you always gather inspiration from all sorts of people, depending on what part of your life that you're interested in. I mean, as a, as a public speaker, there's a thousand people that you look at and you pick up little things here and there and go, wow, like that, that's, that moves me, you know, that, that motivates me to want to be better. And, um, from a, a close sense, I mean, you know, my dad was my hero growing up and, and it was a quite an interesting relational change, especially once I became a man and had to deal with being a, an adult footballer. I mean, he was sort of always the guy who, gave me the small little bits of advice that I needed and, and the little, you know, kick in the backside and, and, and pat on the back. Though, you know, invariably it was more kicks in the backside than pats <laughs> on the back, particularly because I was doing pretty well. But yeah, he was always a massive guiding, you know, influence in my life and still is now. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know about so much mentors. I mean, I, I do access a lot of people and I tend to think that I try and pull knowledge from as many people as possible. And diversity is key, mm. you know, because everyone's perspective is um, is relevant. And, and I think that, you know, the people that I deal with, are, are, you know, some are, you know, remarkably successful in completely different industries, but understanding, you know, success and high performance has always been something that interests me. And so collating ideas 
you know, as many people as I can is always my, my best tactic, I think. Yeah. I mean, your story is the perfect fit for ASIC sound mind, sound body philosophy. Now that you're not playing sport competitively, do you still keep active and work out, chuck the footy around? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I play, so I play amateurs for St. Kevin's, which is, it's been quite an interesting journey. I've been at the club for 18 months or probably a little bit over now. And I've only played four games because we missed the whole of last year with COVID. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but specifically in reference to, you know, sound mind, sound body, I mean, last year is the perfect example, right? I mean, in 2020, as a person who does a lot of public events, who was attending union person who finished up his AFL career, you know, not on a whim, but very quickly in May the year before, you know, I found myself realistically not having anything on my, on my plate. And part of what I had to do was turn to exercise to fill in my mornings in particular and use it to decompress throughout the day. So it's still, you know, an enormous part of my practice, an enormous part of who you are. I mean, from just from a purely physiological point of view, the relationship between exercise in particular, like raising your heart rate, and uh, an ability to tolerate stress and anxiety has been proven a thousand times. And I think for me that it's always going to be the things that I'll turn to, to, mm. you know, recalibrate myself, to ground myself and to, to take some of the stresses that life invariably throws at us. Oh, it's exercise is so powerful. Uh, I went through a breakup last year and I ran like every yep. day and it was so meditative for me. Uh, and it, I feel like in turn it helped me get through that because I got through it a lot faster than anyone would have thought. What sort of running do you do? Because, I mean, the biggest challenge for a lot of people out there, I think, is mm. obviously running becomes meditative when you get good at it, right? When you start off, it sucks. <laughs> like <laughs> When I first started, maybe I could only run three or four kilometers. Uh, and then by the end of it, I worked my way up and uh, did a virtual half marathon. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? It, it does take persistence. I mean, the one thing that I often say to others and because you know I, I was I still am quite a, a prolific runner obviously with my with my football but mm. um, you know one of the great challenges for you know I'm 100 and whatever kilos 110 kilos I'm 201 centimeters so running 20 k's is probably not going to be the best for my knees and ankles yeah. especially with the surgeries that I've had over the years but you know one thing that I always say to people is that you know you break it up make it in a you know a nice place walk it run mm -hmm. you know do it on trails if you want to do you know broken up sessions write it all down before you start so you know what you're trying to going to accomplish and i think all of those yeah. things just make running a little bit more palatable to some people who it might be foreign to because the actual effects on my body and my brain when i run and when i you know sweat in particular is just mm -hmm. you know second to none in terms of just relieving any issues and anxieties they have and um it doesn't lose its charm ever which yeah. is the the great thing so um yeah I'm, I'm obviously a massive proponent for that at this stage of my life do you have a favorite shoe that you run in i've worn the gt 2000s for mm. ever and i like will never change i mean they're so good it sounds like a massive plug because we're on the asics podcast but i know <laughs> but it's, it's the truth <laughs> i literally have been an asics proponent for as long as i can remember which is yeah. uh which is a nice alignment yeah, they're, they're just, they're the best shoe. It's what I used to run in when I did cross country back at school and yeah. I've never yeah, looked exactly. back. Yeah, my my mum and dad, like, I mean, those. it's it lucky that dad worked hard as an electrician because 
the amount of shoes that I grew out of, I mean, every single year from the age of like six or seven, I'm, I'm not sure when it started, obviously, but I changed shoe size once a year, like clockwork cool. till I was 15. It was just like 12, I'm 12, 13, I'm 13, whatever. And then 15, I'm 15. And they're like, is this ever going to stop? Especially because if you go past 15, the world gets, we get a very, very small marketplace to access. So yeah, thankfully it all finally stopped. <laughs> and so... Now I feel like you've done a lot of work on yourself. What What's your purpose now? Yeah, I, people is always the thing for me. I mean, I've tried to work around a thousand different ways and unfortunately or fortunately enough, it's that, you know, connection with people is what counts. And, you know, the thing that I can't do is change the lives of those who are on, you know, the pure end of the spectrum at either end. I, I don't believe that's yeah. the, the challenge that I'm, I'm built for. The, the challenge that I'm built for, I think, is is changing the 95% of people, that there's two standard deviations from the mean, you know, 2%, 3%, getting the conversation moving in the right direction so that instead of impacting, you know, a small amount of people on a large scale, it's a larger scale, large scale of people on a sm- in a small way. And I think that the ramifications for us as a society getting this stuff right and understanding mental health, understanding physical health, I mean, particularly given the current circumstances of the world, are genuinely yeah. at the core of us getting society right going forward. And I, I mean that in no small sense of the word. I mean, every single word of what I'm saying in the sense that if we can affect people's lives in a positive way and people can understand this, they will then therefore pay it forward in a way because they'll be happier and more comfortable speaking and treating each other in a better way. And you'll be amazed to see the sheer amount of growth that people will have, let alone, you know, this amount of suffering that will obviously prevent. Sound mind, sound body. What does that mean to you? Well, as I've sort of said a couple of times, I mean, the link between your physical health and your mental health is undeniable. And I think that with one comes the other and, and, and vice versa. And so for me, it's understanding that working on your mental health is just as important and mm-hmm. can often be achieved or a good mental health can often be achieved by utilizing the physical health element of your life. And I think that in my life, the biggest help that I've ever had is obviously from, it, uh, from accessing it, particularly from the professional element and then learning the skills that way so that then I can implement them um, for a long-term strategy. So to anyone who's listening, my advice to you would be always get people to help you achieve your best, you know, from a coaching standpoint, whether that be a coach for your mind, for your body or for anything else. I mean, it's always so, so useful and has been so supportive for me, particularly in the more challenging periods. But then also as that person to be there to, to celebrate with you when things go well. And Tom, what's what's next for you? You've got your own podcast, but what else? So the stuff with the data analytics company ever perform is my, my main concern at the moment. I really want to be able to influence change within the corporate environment, try and um, you know use data as the the hook and the tool to to drive positive change. I think companies have become a lot more cognizant in spending money in terms of um, you know supporting their employees whether that be through assistant programs or, um, you know, certain forms of support or, or whatever it is. But how do we actually work out what your employees need and, and where the money should be spent? That's part of what I really would like to do. Um, and it's something that I've been working, uh, again, with Ever Perform for quite some time. 
I've got a book that'll be coming out next year in May. No idea what it's called yet, but that'll be basically <laughs> aimed at helping young people deal with the struggles yeah. they have. It will certainly won't be a footy memoir considering my career only went for five and a half years. But yeah, there, there's the, and then obviously sharing my story. I mean, yeah. one of the greatest tools we have in this space is the ability for people to hear others' struggles and others being able to overcome them and then what they've done to do so. And I think for me that there's nothing more powerful than listening to someone. And, and that's why I, I truly love doing what I do. And every time that someone comes up to me and says, thank you or that I've done something that's been positive in their life. It, uh, it gives me the, the best feeling in the world. So that's, uh, that's the, the, the feeling that I'll be chasing. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, we can't wait to read that book that comes out in May. And thank you so much for chatting with us today. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me. So clear and eloquent about what he wants to achieve and how he's going about it. And such great work he's doing to raise awareness to help people with mental health issues. So if anyone listening to this is going through anything, I want to encourage you to seek help and to speak up. Tom really has been putting the work in, both in body and mind. You can check out Tom's podcast and all other things that we spoke about in our show notes. That's it for me for this week. I'm Tegan Nash. Please subscribe to Sound Mind, Sound Body Stories and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Coming up next week. Stories like the one we hear on the next episode of Sound Mind, Sound Body Stories are not often heard. Mark Daniels was in the Navy, fit, active and loving life until one terrible day a careless driver changed everything. At 22 years of age, I found out what it was like to die. It's a story of man has everything, man loses everything and then man turns everything around to become an athlete and ninja warrior. And I guess for me that I made a deal with life, God, fate, the universe, whatever, is the bigger purpose that if I got a second chance, I was going to live this life the best that I could and really just push the limit. I spoke to Mark about his ongoing journey to recovery and sporting success. No one dreams of going to the Paralympics, everyone wants the Olympics, but this is like the hand I've been dealt. I'm using it for the best I've got. Mark Daniels, inspiring us all to change the way we see our lives. Listen and subscribe to Sound Mind, Sound Body Stories now. Thank you.